Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. Wales faces urgent challenges, including climate change, a cost of living crisis, dealing with the fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic, a broken housing market, and more. That's the introduction to the IWA report, Fiscal Firepower, Effective Policymaking in Wales. But what does this mean on the ground? Are the billions in the Welsh budget in reality already committed to public service delivery, with very little left to alter the status quo? Is it the Glamorgan County Council on stilts that it's often referred to? Joining us tonight to look at fiscal powers in Wales are the report author Harry Thompson, who's the economic policy lead at the Institute of Welsh Affairs, and Dr Victoria Winkler, director of the Bevan Foundation. Hello, Harry. Thanks for having me. And hello, Victoria. Hello. First question this week is with Mr Davis. Hi, Victoria. Um, I want to start with you because... In reading the report, I was minded of many of the commissions and inquiries that Wales has had over the past 20 years, the Haltham Commission, Silk Commission, Wales Act, and David's Day Agreement. We do have a history of these reports, and uh, before we ask the report author to talk us through what the IWA are saying, are you able to just set the scene around fiscal powers in Wales for us, please? I think that's a very useful pointer there, Carrie, to remind us that, in fact, the fiscal powers that Wales has at the moment have not been easily won. It has been like pulling teeth to get any movement. Um, Tax policy was very contested at the time and arguably was something that the then Welsh government didn't want. And you have a strong sense, or at least I do, that this is the real core business around devolution and that it's something that the UK government doesn't actually want to give away. Um, it's quite happy for us to go and play doctors and nurses with hospitals and go and play house with building new properties. But when it comes to the, the real nuts and bolts of controlling a modern state, which is around finance and around justice, which is perhaps subject for another podcast, it is, a, it is very, very contested. Thanks, Victoria. I think that teases up quite nicely for Harry. Harry, I don't want to beat around the bush here. It's your report. Can you give us a brief summary of what it contains and any recommendations that the IWA make? Yeah, I think that's a a brilliant way of putting it from Victoria there, actually. It's about how the Welsh Government acts as state in practice. And uh, we heard a bit of preamble, the report's preamble from Matt there. Uh, Wales faces huge challenges, essentially, and that those are going to require big solutions. Uh, At the IWA, we want to look at those big solutions. And, you know, in my role as economic policy lead at the IWA, when we were looking at what we're going to study and research next, we essentially looked at a range of things. You know, you could do huge investment in modal shift in transport. You could look at what the Welsh government could do around housing in terms of, you know, a 1945 government style huge investment in social housing. And, you know, again and again, and I was speaking to a politician the other day who was saying um, lots of this won't be new to people who kind of work in these areas. Again and again, you kind of run into the brick wall of the fact that the Welsh government is pretty fiscally restrained. And that might sound pretty surprising to some people, considering it's got a £20 billion budget. But essentially what we're looking at is this issue that we kept bumping into again and again, which is that that £20 billion or so is really heavily committed already to public service delivery and it's very very tight actually the budget about 82 percent of it well actually 82 percent of it comes from the block grants from Westminster so Welsh taxpayers pay into the UK treasury and then the block grant comes based on UK government departmental spending in England. The Welsh government has some taxation powers they're pretty inflexible too 
and it has very, very restrained borrowing powers, and it's borrowing powers that are the predominant focus of this report. So the, the fiscal framework limits the ability of the Welsh Government to do these big solutions, even in fully devolved areas. We think that more borrowing powers could mitigate this. We've looked at something called prudential borrowing powers, which sounds very dry. It is a bit dry, uh, but it's very important, we think. And essentially what the Welsh Government has called for and the Senate Finance Committee has called for and now we're calling for is these prudential borrowing powers, which means that the Welsh Government can borrow based on its ability to pay rather than based on what is a fairly arbitrary cap of £1 billion in perpetuity and £150 million a year, which is about 0.7% of its budget. And, and essentially what we're trying to do with this report is to start an honest debate about what we can and can't do due to fiscal powers. So, you know, I use that example of housing. Um, if we wanted to have a huge investment, Welsh government-led in social housing, it would be pretty restricting our ability to do so without taking lots from the capital budget of other public services. This is despite housing being a policy area that is ostensibly fully devolved. So we, we want to start a debate with this report about how fiscal powers actually limits devolution, even in areas that are ostensibly fully devolved. And we want a, a start for 10 in addressing this issue is looking at increasing those borrowing powers to be prudential borrowing powers where the Senate and Welsh Government essentially create their own cap based on what it can pay rather than that arbitrary cap of 1 billion in order to increase what we're calling the fiscal firepower of the Welsh Government. Victoria, you've seen this report and I think a lot of what Harry just spoke about would be very keen for the Bevan Foundation to, to have a view on. But have you got any immediate comments on um, the report as it stands? I, I think it's a really useful contribution to the debate and I think it's a sign of our, I suppose, the Welsh, Welsh politics community or civil society more broadly that there isn't a narrative about how we got to where we are. And so simply having that there, out there, publicly available, is incredibly important. I think focusing on borrowing, I understand why you do that, but I think it's just part of the, the bigger problem. And I think I wouldn't want the debate to get completely hung up on borrowing because it seems to me it's a matter of principle. If the Welsh Government is going to have devolved powers, it needs to have the fiscal powers that go with it. You know, it, what the Welsh Government might want to do is not necessarily on the capital side. It might well be that the Welsh Government decides it wants, I don't know, class sizes of, of 10 or amazing, an amazing health service. It, it, so it might then be that it's the revenue budget that needs to grow. So I think for me, while I, I don't disagree with the arguments that you've put forward, Harry, and you put forward, them forward really well, I think it's actually a, a, there's more of an in-principle point about if you have a devolved decision-making powers, you need the tools that go with that. It's like sending someone into a you know a sweet shop and without any money, if you like. And I, th I think the other thing that I'd like to explore if we have a chance to in this debate is what do you do about it? Because... The recommendations is clearly very difficult and clearly the Welsh Government, I mean, we, we know, you know, they've been banging their head against a brick wall. And especially in the current climate, when we're probably going to be looking at some quite substantial spending cuts. So how do you how do you change? How do you you know, how do you how do you move forward in that sort of climate? You're going to really hate me now, uh, Victoria, because I'm going to get hung up on uh, borrowing for a second. Harry, Wales has very limited tax raising powers, although it does have 
sermon, we'll get into that later. Does that limited tax raising power base make it harder to pay off any borrowing the Welsh government were to make? The traditional economic orthodoxy for a very long time has been you, you, you shouldn't overborrow because if you overborrow, you end up spending more of your day-to-day spend on paying back debt. But with such limited tax raising powers, is the case for borrowing really that strong in practice rather than in principle? Yeah, address Victoria's point really quickly, which I totally agree that it's not all about borrowing powers. I think it's just a start of a 10 that we're using in this report, but I couldn't agree more that there's a much wider thing at, at debate here about Wales's fiscal framework and how you unlock policy measures. And ultimately, you know, one of the best things you can do is to increase your economic base and increase, increase your tax base. So you've got more money coming in, you can do more. And that's something that Wales really needs to do. It's got quite low uh, tax receipts uh, per head. In, in terms of your question, Matt, I think, I mean, I'm going to get deep into the economic theory straight away here. There's something that called the moral hazard uh, about sub-state borrowing, that essentially what the theory is, is that there's a risk to the UK government if it gives more borrowing powers to the Welsh government, whilst being the main beneficiary of Welsh taxpayers' tax receipts. Because, you know, if you had a situation where a sort of nebulous Welsh government got elected and borrowed as much as it wanted through the UK government treasury, uh, essentially try to turn Wales into a utopia at the expense of, you know, collapsing itself, there would be this perceived moral obligation from the UK government to bail out Welsh public services, because how could they not if they're the main beneficiary of Welsh taxpayers' money? So one of the things about tax devolution and that tax base is that if you wanted to move borrowing powers more towards the Welsh government, there is a good case for devolving taxation powers as well in, in economic literature. In terms of repayments, I think that's a slightly different point because the Welsh government does have the block grant and it's got a fairly consistent, reliable block grant. I don't think you're ever going to see a situation where the block grant is so low that you couldn't make debt repayments. But I think that's this is kind of what this debate is about, is that that £1 billion cap of borrowing allowance the Welsh government has at, at a maximum of £150 million a year is quite low and it's quite arbitrary and it just blocks off any, you know, major scale projects i think you know victoria will know from the development foundation and lots of us will know from our own roles that you essentially get this situation where the welsh government is sitting there hoping that the uk government spends in devolved areas in england so that it can undertake its own projects which to us just doesn't feel like a very mature way of financing a, a nation and it's really hard to plan so i think when you're talking about you know borrowing powers and debt repayments i think that's kind of what we're looking at to move to a more sensible system where you're borrowing based on your ability to make those repayments rather than just one pulling one billion pounds pretty much out of the air and saying that's that's the the cap that we've got and you know I've, I've got sympathies with how we ended up in this situation I think Victoria outlined it really well at the start in the sense that it's been such a battle to get to this point there's been such a reluctance from London and, it, and from some people in Wales as well because it's such a complex undertaking to get to this point that you know we had to start somewhere and you know we had we moving towards tax devolution and moving towards, you know, having some areas of income tax varying powers was such a big move in itself that borrowing powers kind of became under-focused on. But now I think, you know, we've got to, we, that's what we're trying to do in this report is give a narrative of how we got here and look at how the system essentially could be improved and where the problems are and where they need plugging. Sorry, just to play devil's advocate, there is a, an argument to be made that the more you spend on debt repayment, the less you have to spend on everyday priorities. Do you think that's actually the case? It, it is and it isn't. I mean, clearly your debt repayments come out of your revenue, but 
it's not something that you can equate with household finances where you think, hang on a minute, the bigger mortgage I've got, the, the more I'm going to have to pay. And the win-win situation that we should be looking at is that what you've borrowed to spend on your capital actually then starts reducing some of your revenue. So you've borrowed to build, I don't know, something amazing that actually means that fewer people need to go to hospital or, or fewer, you know, you have fewer costs in, in other ways. So it's it's not a straightforward calculation. And I think it's back to the point of principle, which is that if Wales is mature enough to have its own government, its own parliament, it can pass laws, it can, you know, do, do all sorts of things, then it should be mature and responsible enough to be able to borrow. And I do think that the debate in the in the early 2010s and, and mid-2010s about income tax were actually really unhelpful because the then Welsh government view was not in favour of having income tax raising powers. And there were many people then who thought that this was, you know, if, if you if you have aspirations about your 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 role as a government, you should want to maximise your powers. And I know that what was offered, as it all was contested through Parliament, was something of a poison chalice. But I think the the message that came out did not help that case. And I think as we're you know in a very different place now, I think there is much more scope for the Welsh government to be much more positive that it needs the fiscal powers alongside its legislative powers. Well, we'll, we'll get back onto the Welsh government's use of tax powers very shortly, don't worry. But Harry, is this the case then of you want to borrow to, uh, and I'm sorry to paraphrase here, to, to make a bigger pie? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a problem with the metaphor in the sense that you can't actually <laughs> grow pies. But yeah, I, I think the, the underlying point is true, is that the Welsh government, if it had more borrowing powers, would pay out more in debt repayments, almost certainly, depending on what kind of decisions it would make. But the reality is it probably would make the decisions to borrow more. I, you know, we spoke to Rebecca Evans for our podcast, not to plug another podcast on here, but we but we spoke to Rebecca Evans and she said that if they, you know, that if they had more borrowing powers, they could do more, essentially. And I think the point of borrowing isn't just for the sake of it, you know, like like Victoria said, it, it's to decrease what you've got to spend on revenue or it's to increase revenues from another area. So, you know, ideally, you'd be looking at some kind of economic growth. You'd be investing in infrastructure. You'd be investing in growing that pie and getting more tax receipts, receipts down the line and also getting the benefits of that or of, or of that more educated population or whatever you wanted to spend it on. Victoria, if we have that borrowing ability and the need, why have we not fully utilised our existing borrowing powers? <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, Harry, I think Harry might be able to cast more light on that. Yeah, it, I mean, it's another, It's well, it, the Welsh government's position on this is that it's another uh, symptom of the flaws of the fiscal framework in the sense that the Welsh government's budget is predicated on departmental spending changes in England. And so when you have things like this mini budget the other day, when spending changes in England mid-year for the Welsh government, mid-financial year for the Welsh government, it changes their budget consistently. They're consistently getting differences in what they spend. So the Welsh government's position is that they have every year set out what they intend to use the borrowing powers on. And every year that comes down in the form of Barnet consequential, and then they don't have to use it anymore. So this is kind of another one of the issues with the fiscal framework, which is that 
it's, it's really hard to plan. It's really hard for the Welsh government to know what budget it's getting year on year. And yeah, they try and use those borrowing powers every year. And then a barnet consequential comes down the line as a result of spending in England. And then that capital budget is already there. They actually try to use that borrowing allowance every year and haven't been able to every year. So you think it's an inability to use that borrowing allowance rather than uh, not wanting to use it? Yeah, yeah. They, they, they've set out publicly their things like their infrastructure investment plan and what they plan to use the capital uh, borrowing powers for. And then that money comes from somewhere else and they're not able to use it. Yeah, so it's said uh, that they've intended to but haven't been able to. I mean, I, I, you're absolutely right. And it's exactly the same with revenue. I mean, they suddenly discover they've got a slab of extra cash to spend. But having that kind of variation in, in your spend profile is not unusual. I mean, if you worked in local government, which I did for many years, you, you the local authorities have to ha- manage considerable slippage normally in their capital programmes or cost overruns. And that's why you often, or allegedly why you often see lots of works being done in January, February, March, where, you know, they're trying to manage their capital programme. And I'm, I'm sure the Welsh Government can do that to some extent. What it doesn't do is give them the assurance that they will have enough capital to fund multi-year projects. And that is arguably some of the, the things that, that we need. A few years ago, we did some work that involved looking at the some of the north the approaches being taken by city regions outside Wales. And they were really interesting because they weren't constrained in what they what their funding was. They said we want to build X, Y, and Z, for example, motorways, X, Y, and Z trams, we want to do this, we want to do that. And we estimate that's going to cost however many billion here you are UK government you fund it and I think if 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 the Welsh government was more explicit in the kinds of things that it wanted to fund with that infrastructure if they did want to say right we want this massive modal shift and we want a railway to our with and we want you know heads the valleys tramway and goodness knows what else they might think of not only does that give a justification for that level of borrowing and a reassurance that it's going to be used responsibly but it also stands a chance of winning popular support and I think the key if you look back all the changes that have been made in Wales's devolution settlement have been a mixture of kind of I suppose for want of a better word some sort of elite people's ideas about moving the settlement forward but that's been combined then with popular support and I think if people knew that the reason why we've got you know, our infrastructure, say, is not is not as good as it might be, and that we could have all these other things if only you could do so. I, I think that would be a much stronger basis, that coupled with the principle. And it also takes it out of this hugely technocratic debate, which is just a massive turnoff for just about everybody. And it becomes not about the, not about the means, it becomes a debate about the ends. And I think that's got the potential to, to really change the tone of the debate. I'm not sure if it was in the report or in the research, my reading for tonight's pod, but I was surprised that uh, Welsh Government had only utilised £65 million of its £1 billion cap by 2021. 
there's no real question to that unless you want to pick up on it but I felt that was a surprise really but I mean how does how does that look you you there you are in UK Treasury and and you've got you know oh we want more borrowing but actually you haven't done it and oh we want to raise taxes but actually you haven't very tax very tax powers it doesn't look like you really really want it does it I suppose the, the counterpoint to that would be that the Welsh Government's borrowing powers agreed in the fiscal framework in 2016 only actually came into play in April 2019. So it, so it, we are talking about a pretty short period. And I suppose that the other counter argument, and I don't necessarily disagree with what Victoria is saying, it's just that there's a bit of both sides. The other counter argument is that, you know, if you're sat in the UK Treasury and the Welsh Government come to you and say, we, we've maxed out our credit card in, in two years, can we have some more? They, they may also say, hmm. Is, is this the most responsible actor when it comes to borrowing? So it, it, I do have some thin, sympathy for the Welsh Government being trapped between a rock and a hard place on this one. Nicely tease up my next question, Harry, because one of the ways Welsh Government have uh, managed budgets, I suppose, is developing innovative financial solutions. And I think the report mentions the mutual investment model, uh, something I remember from my time in Welsh Government, you know, can we call that public-private partnership, but the Welsh twang, as it were? And that, that's still in play, isn't it? Yeah, so I, I'm not an expert on the mutual investment model, but I think one of the key things that came through in the report is that, you know, the Welsh government tries to do as much of its borrowing and what they what when he was the finance minister, Mark Drakeford used to call a ladder of borrowing. So he tries to use the cheapest, the Welsh government tries to use the cheapest forms of borrowing first and the cheapest form of borrowing available, according to Jerry Holtham and a couple of other commissions is borrowing through the National Loans Fund, which is essentially the UK government's credit card. It's uh, the, the, the debt markets are going a bit haywire today, but it's nearly always the cheapest form of borrowing available to the Welsh government. And one of the really interesting things about this, which is we wrote this report in order to look at how the fiscal framework places limitations on policymaking. We actually uncovered some really interesting things about how borrowing works when it comes to the Welsh government's. And that is that that one billion cap applies to that cheapest form of borrowing and the mutual investment model, which is more expensive, was actually developed in order to allow borrowing over and above that one billion cap. So we've got this really strange situation where the cheapest forms of borrowing are limited and the more expensive forms of borrowing are encouraged by the fiscal framework. So you, you, went, you end up asking the question, well, does that push cap the cost of financing, the government financing capital projects? higher in Wales than it does in England because you know the mutual investment model has a lot of similarities to PFI which are which is extremely expensive and far more expensive than um, national loan fund borrowing so you know you do end up with this really really odd situation where the Welsh government is almost incentivized to utilize more expensive forms of borrowing and actually in, when we were researching the Welsh government proposal for prudential borrowing in, in the Welsh government's guidance to local authorities on on utilizing those prudential borrowing powers that local authorities already have they said that prudential borrowing powers were initially brought in because local authorities had spending caps and they were trying to access forms of finance that got around capital controls rather than utilizing the cheapest forms of borrowing and that's exactly the position the welsh government finds itself in now so the logic of bringing in prudential borrowing for local authorities totally applies to the Welsh Government now. It's a lesson we've already learned in the past, but don't seem to have learned with how we arrange the Welsh Government's fiscal uh, powers. I've got to say, it, it, that was one of the big surprises for me on reading the report about how little of that one billion available had been used, and we're still using the mutual investment model. Victoria, 
you know, there are other fiscal avenues in Wales, and one of the mainstays for the past 20-odd years has been European funds, and that's Brexit has meant that that annual £300 a year for Wales has recently been removed, and uh, it's not really been replaced by the levelling-up funds. Would you say that's fair, Victoria? Yes. Yes. I mean, you know, there were various um, statements made in and around the referendum about funding being replaced, but I don't think we've yet to see that on anything like the same scale or with the same certainty as well. I mean, those those EU programmes were were quite long term programmes, so we, we don't have them. Harry, the report touches on Europe a little bit. Is there anything else you want to draw on European funds or its absence? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Victoria's addressed there the, the breaking of the not a penny less promise. But I also think there's an organisational thing to consider here as well, which is that our report is talking about the massive constraints that the Welsh government's lack of what we're calling fiscal firepower places on its ability and, you know, through that, the ability of Welsh citizens to vote for policy measures in devolved areas. And I think it's not just about the spending that Wales gets, it's also about the spending, the powers that the Welsh government gets. That This was, you know, around £300 million a year of you know, fiscal firepower for the Welsh government. That The Welsh government's, you know, capital borrowing cap is £150 million a year. So, we're talking about pretty significant amounts of money that have been taken away from the Welsh government and essentially, you know, repatriated to London. You know, I know there's a, a bid system where local authorities bid into a pot based on UK government values and it's signed off by the UK government. But you know, the decision making power is now in London. So, you know, you've got this situation where the Welsh government, which was already suffering from a very tight budget because it, you know, pre-commits a lot of its money to public services and doesn't have a lot left over to uh, achieve transformative change. Well, one of the biggest sticking plasters on that was that European funding, and now it's lost that as well. You mentioned the National Loan Fund uh, a little earlier, and I thought that was a really interesting piece of the report. But you also looked at some other niche areas, and one of the ones that stood out for me was um, something the Australian government utilises, the Independent Commonwealth Grants Commission, Can you just explore that a little bit for us, Harry, and how it could possibly work in the UK? Yeah, so this is where we kind of touched on some other options to mitigate the problems that we lay out in the report. Uh, Ultimately, we land on a pretty simple, easy solution as a a short-term fix of increasing the Welsh government's borrowing powers through going to provincial borrowing powers. But we looked at other options like the Australian government. Essentially, what the Australian government does, it's it's got a revenue pool, a tax pool, called the Goods and Services Tax. And what it does, it distributes those out to states according to need so that it can try and put the different states in Australia in a position to provide their residents with comparable services. Uh, And it's got an independent commission that you've just mentioned that figures all that out. So it's taken away from central government and taken away from states. Uh, And it means that some states like Western Australia get about $2,000 per person from this tax revenue pool. Uh, And some of the poorer ones like the Northern Territory go over $14,000 per person. So that's one thing we could potentially look at when we're talking about how to fund the Welsh government. But uh, we're, we're particularly interested in this report in just how you can increase the Welsh government's fiscal firepower. Because when you start looking at things like the Independent Commission, you really start looking at how do you replace the Barnet formula and how do you completely revolutionise how the Welsh government is funded. And all those systems are going to have different trade-offs and different pros and cons. And it's not really, it's not something that the, the report is... Uh, takes a full view on that would require a lot of work 
I'm glad you teed me up for the Constitutional Commission there, Harry. Victoria, do you think any of these fiscal aspects are going to feature in the Commission as they come through with their final report? I don't know the Commission's thinking. I would very much hope that they would. I think there are several sort of fundamentals to the next steps of Wales's evolution and devolution settlement, but the extent to which they will address them, I don't know. I mean, certainly the questions in the consultation documents that they put out were, it still seemed to me very much from the mindset of, you know, what more would you, you know, what more would you like to do? Would you like social security benefits? Or, you know, it was about powers rather than about the, the foundations, I suppose. So I don't know. Let's see. Let's see what they say. I thought you were reading our script on our minds there, Victoria, because our, our next question is on social security. Harry, did you have anything to add on that? Yeah, I, I suppose I, I just plug one of our recommendations. Our recommendation four from the report is that the lack of fiscal firepower for the Welsh Government should be a core consideration for all policymakers, academics and the Constitutional Commission. I thought Victoria put it really well there when she said that there is a focus sometimes in this debate on, you know, which powers do you want next? Do you want justice next? Do you want social security next? And, you know, I think those are important debates, but that fiscal firepower one is one that underpins everything. And I think that message that we're going to go to again is that you can devolve things like housing, but if the Welsh government doesn't have the fine, the, you know, the fiscal firepower available to it to do to do the larger scale, the more radical, the more transformative options at the end of the spectrum, then Welsh voters don't, you know, in practice have the right to vote for those because they can't be done like they could be done by voters in England through the UK government. So I, I really hope, uh, I suppose the point is, I really hope the Const Constitutional Commission do look at that lack, lack of fiscal firepower for the Welsh Government and do consider how it impacts on policy across the board. So I know both of you have talked at length in the past about the possibility of devolving social security and, and welfare to Wales. Do you think it would be fair to say that there may be more fiscal firepower for Wales if those powers were devolved rather than powers of a borrowing per se? I mean, social security is an in, it's a very difficult question that you can't answer simply. But there are elements of the social security system that I think lend themselves to devolution quite readily. And there are other elements which, because they're linked to people's contribution into the UK Tax, broad tax system through their national insurance, which don't lend themselves quite so neatly. So pensions, for example, um, perhaps certain maternity benefits and so on and so forth, they, they would be much more difficult to devolve. I think there is a strong case in principle for devolving some aspects of the social security system, but, and it's a big but, without the financial resources, and I don't like that word, I'm sorry, fiscal firepower, I, you know, without the resources and the ability to raise funds, then I, I, think, I think it would be quite dangerous. And the example that I always use is around housing. So we don't know the, the current expenditure, but in 2016, a billion pounds came into Wales through the then housing benefits system. So this was cash that was coming in to help people on low incomes to pay for their rents. And at no point ever in any policy document did anybody think, hang on a minute, there's this billion quid coming in that's basically subsidising the private rented sector. What if we did something different with that? 
Now, I accept there would be a very difficult transition, but you think of all the social housing that you could build with that billion quid. And that's, that's just not in the debate. Now, if that was devolved, the Welsh Government would then need to have the ability to raise that million, and that's revenue, not, not capital, raise that billion. And if the suddenly rents go through the roof or building costs go through the roof, how does it do that? If we suddenly have mass unemployment, how does it deal with that? So I, I think devolution of aspects of the social security system without coming with the financial tools that it needs to manage that massive exposure, massive exposure, I think, I think it's a non-starter. Now, that's an example, I think, of what I was saying earlier, where you don't argue, you either argue for the principle of, you know, where's as a nation devolved, blah, 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 or you say, we want to do this, but in order to do this, we need the tools to do it. Whereas at the moment we've got we've got like the reverse, which is, oh, we can't do it, because that may be true, but nobody ever changed minds by with a negative, did they? No, it's it's interesting, Victoria, because there's you often find people who are supportive of the concept of devolving welfare to Wales, but less in favor of devolving tax and borrowing powers. So I, I don't wanna I don't wanna make your argument make this argument and say this is what you said, but if if someone was in favour of welfare devolution, should they also now be saying, if in order to do this, we need tax and borrowing powers? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the Scottish government has already been under real pressure from the costs of devolution from its very limited elements of social security that it manages. And if something, you know, if we have another pandemic that much more severely disables people, then how will they cope? They don't have the tools to do that. And and they they and they've got more fiscal powers than we have in Wales. But but even so, I, I think it's I think they go hand in hand. And otherwise it is actually quite a dangerous move. And that's not I'm not saying that because I'm hostile to any element of social security devolution. Absolutely not. I think we you you touched on it a bit earlier, Victoria, about the how we get these recommendations implemented. I think we've gone on in many, many pods about the muscular unionism of the UK government making further devolution certainly more difficult. Harry, have you had any consideration about how you'd like to see this happen? Yeah, well, that's the big question, isn't it? It's uh, it, It'll ultimately depend on developments at a UK government level. I, th- I think there are things... There's a reason we pitched one of the recommendations to be at the Constitutional Commission. It's, it's hard to predict the way that UK government's going to go, but I suppose you've just got to work with and deal with the major parties where the conservatives go in terms of their attitudes towards devolution it's, it's it's still a very fluid situation i think there's been that move towards muscular unionism but there's there's also that undercurrent of that sort of go right uh, strand of opinion that you're not really going to get anywhere in terms of strengthening the union by forcing wales and scotland to do what they want that's not that's not how people respond to things uh, and i think eventually you know if support for Scottish and Welsh independence keeps rising in, in the face of muscular unionism, they, they might move that way. It, it's clearer to see the thought patterns within the Labour Party because so much of it is very formal and ongoing. So you've got this constitutional commission for the Welsh government at the moment, and you'd imagine that the Welsh government is going to respond to that constitutional commission and pick up at least some of their recommendations, if not nearly all of them. Uh, and then you've got in the UK Labour Party, Gordon Brown's commission, which you would imagine, depending on when it reports, would take into account the Welsh Government's commission, because I can't see the UK Labour Party trying to fully override what the Welsh, the powers the Welsh Government says it wants. So 
it'll depend on the next UK government general election. But in terms of, you know, influencing opportunities for people on the ground in Wales now, I think that Constitutional Commission and that Gordon Brown Commission and the manifestos of both the Conservative and Labour parties at a UK level are ones to be looking at. Absolutely. And I, I think probably one of the um, ways in which to increase or put pressure on the UK government is if support for independence rises. And we only have to look back at the position in Scotland after the referendum there, where there was the most hastily constitutional commission, the most hastily convened one that uh, I, I can recall. And there were quite a lot of big shifts in different elements of devolution, albeit mostly around powers, but there was some fiscal settlements there. And I think I think that's probably, you know, we can learn from, from that and that, you know, start, you know, and it, I mean, it may well happen because very often people do not like to be told what to do by the UK government. So we shall see. I mean, one of the powers we, we already do have is certain limited powers over tax. Uh, and so much of the discourse recently uh, in what the UK government has done is about tax cuts and Mark Drakeford and, you know, premiers before him have always been hesitant to use use Wales's tax varying powers. But do you think that now is the time to have a different tax policy in Wales than in England? I think tax, well, is my inner geek coming out? I think tax policy is really interesting, not so much because of income tax. I think the Income tax is one of those things that sounds great, like why why wouldn't you want to vary the rate? And in fact, I think if we have another round of spending cuts, I think that the, the Welsh government would have a strong case for not implementing those cuts, well, imp not implementing the tax cuts in, in Wales, uh, but we shall see. The problem with income tax is it actually doesn't raise all that much money, and you set that out in the uh, report, Harry, and, that, and that's really helpful reminder what the Bevan Foundation has long been interested in is the potential of new taxes and that's something that came in legislation eight years ago and has not hadn't really been used we've advocated for a tourist tax and I'm we're really really pleased the Welsh government is taking that forward I have to say if you were going to choose a tax that you and we said this in our report in 2016 if you're going to choose tax that you're going to use to try to get over the huge treasury hurdles, you need one that's got popular support. And unfortunately, the tourism industry has vociferously opposed that. And I don't think it's got enough popular support to get it over the hurdles. But I think if the Welsh Government could find the, um, the golden goose out there, whether that's around water supply or wind or power or I don't know but there I, I my hope tells me there's a golden goose out there and that through tax raising powers it could be transformative. Could that be the uh, the vacant land tax or a land value tax you know these are things that have been mooted for a while but they, they don't seem to have support where necessary which is with the UK government. I think land taxes are very interesting and I'd certainly we've supported a shift away from things like council tax to, or to a um, tax based on land value. 
the risk is that if you get your taxes wrong, that you stifle development. Now, that might be fine if you want to stifle development, but in a lot of ways, you don't want to stifle development. And I think that's that's the big risk with with that. It, I mean, I, I very, I mean, it, the, the issue is at least now on the agenda. When we began that work in 2016, we kept being told, "Oh no, British government doesn't have tax raising powers." We go, "Yeah, you do," and uh, it, it, it has taken a very long time. And even now, I think we're not having a, as with borrowing, we're not having a mature enough debate about how you can use those powers responsibly and creatively. You know, as far as I can see, just tourist tax, bring it on, really. <laughs> I, I think what I'd say is just it's just to pick up on Victoria's point about just how inflexible the Welsh government's taxation powers are. She, she referenced our report, said the, the Welsh government gets about 82% of its funding from the block grants. It raises about 18% from devolved taxes. 11% uh, of its revenue is from those income taxes. So it's, you know, 11% is already a pretty small amount of uh, the Welsh government's income. And I think one thing that's really worth noticing, noting is just how inflexible those income tax varying powers are because it doesn't have the ability to vary bands. One of the key features of that is, is that the bands are set at a UK level and they're basically set on a UK average. So, you know, the Senate Research Service has this really handy tool where you can set the Welsh government's uh, tax rate and see the estimates of how much it brings in. And there are only about 9,000 people who pay the additional rate of tax over £150,000 on income over £150,000 a year. So you bring in almost nothing with it. And if you were to be looking at a sensible tax system, tax ban system for Wales, you probably wouldn't set the additional rate there because, you know, incomes are lower in Wales and, you know, living costs are slightly lower in Wales too. You would probably set it a lot lower and that would allow you to bring in more money by raising it. So at the moment, the Welsh government has these, this really, really blunt instrument of only being able to vary a bit of a tax that is basically predicated on English income thresholds, not Welsh income thresholds. So it's not really a very useful tool unless you want to be really regressive and only put the taxes up on basic great taxpayers, which is where most Welsh taxpayers are pitched at. I mean, the other the other big disadvantage with having a substantial difference in income tax between England and Wales is that people and their money are highly mobile. And what you want in tax in tax policies is stuff that can't move. So I'm pretty sure that any variation in, in income tax powers would any, any increase forecast increase in income would would not be materialised as people change their addresses. We already know that people are um, flexible with their where their primary residence is when they apply, you know, either purchasing a second home or paying their council tax. So I don't think we should expect anything different. I think it's a great shame. But um, yeah, that, that's just the reality. Just to be devil's advocate again, I mean, I, th I think it's very unlikely under the Welsh Labour government as it stands. But if if the Wales had those powers, could they actually sort of encourage uh, inward investment or inward relocation to Wales by having a lower tax rate for top earners and maybe raise more revenue that way? That's a very interesting idea. And certainly a few years ago, that that was a popular view. Quite what the effect on that um, in terms of moving beyond revenue i don't know but um that that's certainly been argued that's certainly been argued i, I would be uh, skeptical of it in some ways because i think you know if, if you've got a welsh labor government reducing 
you know, say income tax in Wales, I think what, what you inevitably do is kind of set up an arms race in terms of tax cuts, because d- does a, you know, conservative run England look at that and say, well, we're going to cut ours to that level too. And I think, you know, if, if you're looking at Welsh Labour versus UK Conservatives, in, you know, in that tax cutting arms race, I think you probably say there's more appetite to do it in England. So I, w- I wonder, you know, if, if you can presume there will just be a stable situation where Wales is just allowed to have a lower tax rate and benefit from England investment through that. Or, you know, does, does England equalise it or go one step further and, and take it even lower? And I think, I think one of the dangers of, of doing that is you kind of fire the starting gun on, you know, a, a tax cutting race between three UK nations where the only direction is downwards. And I'm not sure that's a particularly healthy place for us to be. Just to go around, because I think we are in the danger of getting a little circular now with the argument, but isn't that race to the bottom one of the arguments for not devolving further tax powers, having a, a steady line so you can't actually have a, a race to, to cut all taxes? So, so shouldn't we be encouraging uh, a unified tax rate across the UK? Yeah, it depends. It depends what the, the, the unified government, a, a central government is doing. You know, since we've had tax devolution, we haven't seen that arms race to the bottom yet. Um, I, I, I think we, we haven't seen it yet and I wouldn't want to see it start necessarily, but I don't think it's necessarily an argument against tax devolution completely so far because we haven't actually seen it to this point. The trick is to grow your tax base and you generate a much, much bigger income by having more people paying tax even at the standard rate than you do by changing and fiddling around with rates and that's the conundrum that I think the Welsh government faces which is that in order to grow the population I mean we've got you know a declining population we've got an aging population in order to grow the the base of taxpayers it needs the borrowing power and the revenues that it, it doesn't have to make those investments. I mean, for example, if you want, if your policy is to retain families, then the way to do it is to offer brilliant childcare, fantastic education and lovely housing. And that takes money. And but that would be the way of stopping the drift away from Wales. And that's long term. But, you know, governments uh, plan for five years, not 30 years, don't they? Thank you both for coming on. Before we go, I just, you know, we've got a a Welsh budget that will be out in the next few months. Uh, Is there anything uh, you would desperately like to see in a Welsh government budget that could really make a difference to people in the next next couple of years? We would like to see something that we've talked about for a long time actually come into reality. And what that is, is that all the different schemes that operate from free school meals to discretionary assistance fund, discretionary housing payments to people's development grant access that actually spend a lot of money, but in little pots, we would like to see those amalgamated and made into something meaningful and impactful. And that is in all intents and purposes, a Welsh sort of supplementary social security system. I think that would relieve hardship in the, sh- in the short term I think in the longer term, we have to do something about the housing, or they have to do something about the housing crisis. We've been looking at private rented stock, for example, and and population and demand. And we have a serious shortage of of homes and issues around house quality. So those would be my two big asks. Harry, you've obviously, you've set out some uh, some, uh, items on a wish list, but is there anything beyond that that you'd like to see? 
Yeah, I completely echo what Victoria said. And also zooming out a bit, I think, you know, I'd, I'd really like to see a, a more coherent strategy from the Welsh government about how it's going to get Wales's economy to a place that it says in its programme for government, a more prosperous, fair, uh, greener Wales. Um, I think we've got so few economic levers at a devolved level now with industrial relations being reserved and sort of market regulation increasingly reserved with the Internal Market Act's impacts and huge amounts of that economic development funding that was at the Welsh government level now at the UK government level. I'd really like to see the Welsh government have some kind of economic or industrial strategy that's really targeted at certain sectors aimed at specialising the Welsh economy and growing it in certain ways. I I think if you look at what Ireland did post-independence, there's that Celtic tiger model of tax cutting, but there was also, you know, joining the European Union and, you know, massively increasing international trade, but also it was focusing on certain industries and having a really core, tight, targeted industrial strategy. And I I think the Welsh government needs to focus in on, you know, how it wants to grow the Welsh economy and how it wants to create better jobs for everyone, because at the moment it feels a bit scattergun, and I'd like to see that in its capital investment programme and in its budget. I just wanted to thank you both for coming on. I think in a week when there's been much talk about the use of the term detest and enemy between our, some of our political parties, I think it's really nice that two of our leading think tanks in Wales are happy to come on and talk together about various things. I think it shows a grown-up attitude to, to Civic Wales that we at Hiraith really want to see more of. And uh, I noted in my reading, Victoria, that you have now served 20 years of Director of Bevan Foundation, and I just wanted to congratulate you on that. I think that's been a magnificent servant to uh, Civic Wales, so thank you very much. Thank you for reminding me me of my age, Carrie, and also for your kind words. (laughs) You could have got the directorship very young, Victoria. Come on, (laughs) let's look at it like that. I just want to echo what Kerry said. I want to thank you both for, for coming on the, the pod this week. If people want to find you on Twitter, where can they go? Uh, I'm at H. Morgan Thompson on Twitter. Well, I'm mostly at Bevan Foundation on Twitter. I rarely use my personal account. Wonderful. Thank you very much to both of you again. If you've enjoyed what you've heard this week, please don't forget to find us on Twitter and Facebook at Hereith Pod or at our website, www.walespolitics.com. And... As much as we appreciate you supporting us with your ears, if you want to support us with your wallet too, please go to www.patreon.com forward slash hereithpod. All help is very much appreciated. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.